right, hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of The Rambler. Happy 4th of July! Happy 4th of July! Happy Independence Day! We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. Other Bill Pullman things that he says in that movie. Don't watch the second one. I shouldn't say that. Go watch whatever you want to watch. Happy Independence Day. Celebrate our independence from Britain. Our our own Brexit. <laughs> if you agree or don't agree with that, I, I guess I don't care. I only have like one listener in Great Britain anyway, so sorry to you, person in Britain. Or if you were for Brexit, then congratulations, I guess. You did it. I don't know. I'm uh, celebrating 4th of July with the Chuners and Liz and Peter, who just threw a tampon at me. <laughs> because that's the kind of thing that he does. <laughs> and Anne. We're all up here celebrating together, which is great. I, you know, I should probably get into the show show. My guest this week is Liz Guadara. Elizabeth Guadara. She is a Korean adoptee, an Air Force officer, a fighter, a future State Department official, a an actress, a model. She's crazy. She has all these different interests and things that she's good at. She's multi-talented like so many of us are. She's a great inspiration, and you should totally uh, check out this interview and check out the, I think it was the Air Force Times uh, did an article on her uh, which I will post to my Facebook page and tweet it out and stuff for all of you people who uh, follow me there. Uh, if you don't follow me there, you can at facebook.com slash TheRamblerADHD and Twitter at TheRamblerADHD. Uh, you know what? That's, uh, that's all I'm going to say right now for this, for this week's uh, intro, because I just want to get you guys right into it. That way you can listen and then celebrate by going to watch some fireworks. And if you're in the great state of Massachusetts, don't light them yourself because it's illegal and you will get arrested. And if you're a teenager in Central Park, watch where you step because apparently some kid just got his foot blown off on, I guess it was a firework. I don't know. And then the cops were like, were you playing with fireworks? And they were like, nope, not us. Can I go to the hospital now? Because my foot's missing. So be careful. Be careful out there. Go watch and enjoy them. But don't do it yourself, if, especially if you don't know what you're doing, because it's dangerous. And that's my safety message for this week. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all I'm going to say this week. All right. Uh, enjoy this episode with Liz Guadara. Enjoy. Cool, cool. Well, uh, happy Memorial Day. <laughs> yep, <laughs> you too. Uh, so you are, you have graced the social media. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> with that article it's pretty awesome everybody loved it yeah yeah i um i feel pretty lucky to you know gotten the opportunity to do that my squadron commander uh colonel mcmillan is pretty awesome and um you know gave me permission to first off even apply to basically be away from the squadron for four weeks training with the marines uh -huh. um uh -huh. you know so i i definitely thank him for that and um all the hard-working schedulers because we're nuclear operators so we we don't do a normal nine to five schedule. So, sure. you know, they, they need us to pull 24 hour alerts, you know, um, as, as much as they can to help out the squad. So, uh, so yeah, it was, it was an awesome experience, um, being able to train with the Marines and, um, uh, you know, to become a martial arts instructor. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And you look totally badass in that picture. <laughs> I was like, Oh man, I'm, I'm a little bit happy that, uh, we're doing this over Skype and not in person so that my, my <laughs> face won't get punched. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> You look very intimidating. <laughs> How <laughs> no, was it? How I mean, was that uh, that course that you took? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, like, it wasn't just about, because I, I thought it was mostly going to be focused on, you know, the techniques, and yeah, it was, but it's also focused on um, being a good leader and being a really solid communicator. You know, the, the Marine Corps martial arts program has a very solid squared away structure uh, with how mm -hmm. they do things. So we learned how to do it and we were valued on this multiple times. Um, the ability to, you know, teach a particular technique, but on top of that, be able to tie it in with a leadership principle that, you know, is valued by the Marine Corps and actually should be valued by all branches of the military. And it even covers like annual training requirements. So for instance, I had to teach the front choke and tie it in with hazing. Mm. So, um, you know, we have, we call it EDIP as a structure, you know, military loves their uh, acronym. So it's explain, demonstrate, imitate, then practice. So you explain the purpose, principles, and fundamentals of the technique. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you make sure that everyone's squared away on their safeties, um, assign them with uh, to different practice positions. So you basically explain it step by step, anywhere from the angles of movement that you're doing to which hand you're grabbing your your aggressor's shoulders with, whatever it may be, doing it step by step, and then you know making sure that they get time to practice, and then on top of that explaining the tie-in and, and doing a good job of that with that. So um, for mine, with the whole hazing thing, I did research on my own in terms of a particular, you know, hazing case that occurred in the Marine Corps. And it, it occurs in every branch of the military. So I'm not going to say like, oh, it's just the Marine Corps. It's definitely not. Where a particular Lance Corporal went to Afghanistan for the first time, deployed there, fell asleep on his uh, his night shift duty and um, was brutally hazed. He was, uh, he was actually like stomped on for like four hours straight while he was like digging a pit and verbally abused. And it got so bad that he actually committed suicide. Right, yeah. So showing that, you know, this is, this is no joke, you know, so it's important to, to be aware of that and to look out for your other Marines, airmen, whatever it may be, you know? So um, it was very valuable in terms of that. That's awesome. And how did uh, yeah. you get started doing this? Well, I have a background in boxing, MMA and Muay Thai. So um, I started getting interested, I guess, in fighting in college Went to my best friend, went to UMD, and uh, there was a boxing club there. So just kind of fell in love with it, with, uh, I don't know, the, the aggression and just the just how intense it is, you know. And uh, just went from there and um, did it for a bit in college, but not competitively. And then right after college, I went to um, South Korea to teach English at Samsung Electronics. Oh, really? And um, I got, yeah, I got the chance to uh, train at a Muay Thai gym there, which was pretty cool. And um, after I finished my term in Korea... With my contract with them, I ended up finding a, a Muay Thai gym in Thailand. So I went to Thailand just on my own, just, wow. you know, I was like, all right, well, I want to do this. Thailand sounds amazing. And I did, <laughs> you know, I got my ass kicked by this like 50 year old uh -huh. former world champion from New Zealand. So that was, Jeez. that was pretty cool. Came back to the States, worked as a litigation paralegal. Yeah. was training with a retired uh, boxing coach who was in the DC hall of fame. So yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. And then when I went to California and then I went to OTS to become an air force officer during that time, you know, I had to go to technical after I commissioned as a second lieutenant. You know, I went to Vandenberg Air Force Base in California for, you know, nuclear weapons training, trained with a coach out there, which is pretty awesome and sparred with a girl who's like a Golden Gloves champ. And I guess you could say I beat her out. So I was pretty happy about that because she thought she was going to, you know, kick my ass. So it was, nice. it was a good time. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I have a back, I've had a background in fighting, but like never, never with instructing up until now, which uh -huh. is why I'm really pumped to go to, um, my next base uh, in Lackland, you know, to be able to uh, teach some of the Marines there, which would be pretty cool. Wow. So. so you really made this part of your career then because you, you know, nuclear technician operator, I don't know what the title yeah, is, yeah. but, <laughs> it, you know, that doesn't equate necessarily to hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat <laughs> and fighting Muay Thai and boxing, no, right? No, <laughs> I think a lot of people, when they think of the military, <laughs> think like everybody's like crawling through the mud through like barbed wire and like... <laughs> fighting each other and there's mm -hmm. a lot of target practice and stuff like that but that's actually mostly not the case <laughs> exactly yeah so yeah. you really went like full blood sport like went to thailand to learn like muay thai and yeah. went to california yeah. and like fought with some golden glove boxers like that's that's pretty incredible stuff to do yeah i mean i feel fortunate i think a lot of it has to do with just not because I think I'm ridiculously talented, just because I, I'm just not afraid to take chances chances and to do something that puts me completely out of my comfort zone. Yeah. I mean, that's that's been my life. And I think that a lot of the other adoptees can relate to that. You know, we, we've mm -hmm. always been out of our comfort zones our entire life, especially CADs. So to kind of just constantly throw myself into that, I feel like makes me grow so much more as a person. And I'm, you know, I'm really grateful for everybody that's always supported me in, um, in doing that. So getting punched in the face isn't fun, but you know, you learn to, you learn to, you know, get better at your, your movements and your, your defense and that sort of thing to, to avoid it. So I, I mean, so. training with Marines when I've never worn Kevlar and a flak jacket and, you know, run through obstacles with a rifle mm -hmm. before. Looking ridiculous as five foot nothing. Yeah, we I crawled through mud and um, probably probably the coolest um, event I did was the whole course culminated in like this weapons free sparring event and um, there were three different squadrons throughout the whole course that we were divided up into. Basically, we we all wore all of our gear and um, there were a variety of stations that we had to do um, in the woods. So we were 
basically from the start, you know, being put in a stressful situation, getting screamed at while we're running with a 30 pound ammo can. Mm. I ran with the ammo can probably like six or seven times, you know, with another like six foot something Marine, you know, me looking <laughs> ridiculous next to him, but still having a good time. So the first station we, we stopped at was uh, ground fighting in the woods, which was uh, pretty cool. Our squadron actually did really well. We won, put all our gear back on, uh, ran to the next station, which was knife fighting in the woods. So it was pretty cool because, like, um, there's, I guess, how it works is that one squadron is facing outboard, and then the other squadron is facing outboard. So you, you don't see your opponent. You get tapped on the head to when you, you know, you have to find your opponent. So the instructor uh -huh. says, all right, go, find your find your enemy. So you have to go hunt hunt down your enemy and, you know, um, basically execute a straight thrust to the face with a knife. It's not a real knife, but, you know, still still the same principle. Yeah. And then uh, next was weapons of opportunity in basically like a two or three feet of water in a creek, which was pretty cool. So like, you know, the creek mm -hmm. was in the middle and then there were banks of the creek on either side. So one squad was on one side of the creek and then the other squad was on the other side of the creek. So same thing, get tapped on the head, slosh through the water and basically take this foam baton and you have to be able to, you know, do a straight thrust to the face. So. You know, I didn't do so great the first time, but the second time I got tapped in the head, I was pretty excited because I uh, I ended up doing a vertical strike on my opponent's head, and then I did like a straight thrust to her face, and she fell back in the water. So that was pretty cool. And then um, the next station we did was bayonet fighting, or I guess mocha juice. So we did that um, in the woods. But what was really amazing about it was this was basically like the, the last day of the course. And um, we as a squadron had been through so much together, grown a lot, helped each other out um, with di different evaluations and exams and sustainment integration drills, being put in stressful situations. And, um, you know, we were carrying this 30-pound ammo can, having no idea why, just, you know, you just do it so you don't get screamed at as much. So anyways, so <laughs> when, when we finished the, the bayonet assault course, which is pretty cool, like, you know, that, that was when, because we did the weapons, we did the sparring events, and then we went immediately into the bayonet assault course, which basically we had a rifle with a knife attached in the end, and we were, you know, stabbing stuff with it as we were, like, running over obstacles and low crawling through barbed wire and swimming through, like, big, dirty-ass pits of water, and it was pretty cool. Anyways, so when we got done with that, we got to a clearing in the woods. You know, we're all out of breath. Adrenaline was high. Morale was high, too, though. And our squadron IT, was really cool, uh, you know, staff sergeant, you know, was like, all right, well, when you all joined the military, you knew that you took on this big responsibility, this big burden. Now that you're, you know, going to be martial arts instructors, I want you to take that seriously. You know, it is a big burden and responsibility as well. But I want you to take a lot of pride in that. And he opens up the ammo can and it's all of our martial arts instructor belts with the tabs and awards at each of one of us. So he goes, you know, like, Lieutenant so-and-so, what are you going to do now that you're a martial arts instructor? Or Lance Corporal so-and-so, you know what I mean? An award, because we had no idea it had the belts in it. All we know is we were just carrying this ammo can yeah, for some random yeah. reason. That's so awesome. it, was, it was really, I don't know, it, it meant a lot to me. It just yeah. was a, I don't know, really heartfelt moment. Sure, so, that's totally meaningful. That makes yeah. sense. What was the uh, impetus yeah. for your joining the military? Were you in the reserves that whole time where you were uh, no, going to Korean no. teaching and going all over the place and learning Muay Thai and not getting <laughs> punched in the face? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a good question. I actually was um, totally civilian, didn't even apply to OTS until I was um, 24 when I was working as a litigation paralegal. I guess what, what inspired me to join, long story short, was after living in Korea, you know, I, really great things about that country, you know, beautiful country, uh, really good food, cool festivals, but... I don't know, just seeing that the way some of the women were treated, I just felt very grateful for a lot of the opportunities I had been giving, given. Mm -hmm. And, you know, finding out that my birth mother was a victim of domestic violence when for eight years I did, had no idea that happened. Because I, I actually met my birth family first when I was 14 years old oh, really? with my adoptive family who I loved to death. You know, they told me the general story of what happened. You know, I understand when they're, when my American mom was there and they didn't want to go into the details and then when I was 22 and by myself, didn't speak a lick of Korean, teaching English at Samsung um, was when I found out the ugly truth about, you know, part mm -hmm. of the reason why I was given up for adoption. Mm -hmm. So that really hit me hard and, um, you know, I guess made me realize and appreciate, you know, the state so much more in, you know, everything that I've been blessed with. So I, you know, I'm inspired to, to give back and just kind of do something for a higher purpose, you know. Sure. So, so was that was that the circumstances surrounding your adoption then in terms of having been relinquished in Korea was that your mother was being domestically abused and it was just wasn't a safe household for you to grow up in yes exactly that yeah that was um good question that was that was a part of it um she was basically like long story short she was trying to 
I guess, take care of me. And when my birth father was away in the military, and I guess she wasn't treated very well at all by her uh, mother-in-law, so my dad's mm-hmm. mom. And then when he came back from the military, um, I don't know, he, he, was, he was an alcoholic. He, he still is sad. I, I love them both to death. Um, but you know, he just, he, he would really brutally beat her, mm-hmm. um, while my, my grandmother would, you know, yank her hair and curse in her face while my dad would drunkenly beat her. So when I found Jesus. that out, you know, it, it hit me hard because, you know, I, for eight years, I thought that, oh, you were just giving up because your parents could take care of you. Yeah. That's part of it. There was a deeper, a deeper truth to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's crying and can't really communicate and is just saying, you know, I love you. I feel guilty. That's all. All she could really say. And mm-hmm. she tried to kill herself a couple times, and um, you know, was was bulimic, um, just just miserable um, for the most part. You know. Yeah. So, I mean, I hope the best for. Her. I guess that's why I've always had a, a soft spot and interest also in like you know domestic violence and how that ties in with women's self defense. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'd like to teach. I guess like going forward with this whole martial arts thing is like, you know, people who are like really into it and obviously like Marines. So they'll, they'll know, but also, you know, like tailor it to, you know, different groups of people like women's self-defense, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've, I've always had an interest in that. When I lived in Italy studying the fine arts, you know, I, I actually was part of a group, a, a theatrical group that like um, put on a production to um, basically benefit uh, women of the Congo who are being you know, abused and raped um, as a tool of warfare. So I guess I've always had kind of this subconscious interest in it, you know? Wow. So, yeah. Well, was he doing his con- conscription service uh, when he went away to the military and com- came back? Yeah, I believe so. So they so. must have been pretty young. Yes, yes. I believe, I don't quote me on this, but I think they were like anywhere from 21 to 23. Yeah, yeah. I think got married that's usually about up. the age. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. And so uh, we're going to go back because we're jumping all around. We're going to go right. all over the place. <laughs> yeah. You give me these awesome little nuggets of like, I lived in Italy uh-huh. and I did this. <laughs> but right. <laughs> you know, let's start at the beginning then. Okay, so okay. You're, you're in Korea. You were born with your parents. Um, yes. This unfortunate situation happened. You're put up for adoption and you uh, are adopted through which agency? Um, the Asia Adoption Agency in, in Washington, D.C. So Okay. And are you adopted to D.C.? Like where I grew up exactly? You mean, yeah, or, yeah. 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 Uh, pretty much DC, you know, Maryland area. Yep. All right. So, How was that? Yeah. It was a, you know, good experience. I loved growing up in a diverse area. You know, I was really fortunate to have an amazing family that I love to death. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was a little bit different, um, I guess, for me going to kind of like, you know, I guess it, even though it was a diverse area, I went to like a primarily white Roman Catholic, like all white school. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of made me feel like, I guess, as an adolescent, you know, and early in my childhood, just kind of like I didn't fit in very well, you know, yeah. like that I always stuck out like a sore thumb, always just trying to find myself, you know. Mm. But as I got older and as I got into high school, you know, I, I feel like I, I guess I came into my own more, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially after I went to Korea when I was 14, so. So what's, what's the family structure of the uh, Guadara's like? Am I saying that correctly? Am I yes, totally yeah, effing that up? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, you are. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so my mom, Jill, and my dad and my sister, Stephanie. So my parents actually thought they couldn't have kids. Mm-hmm. So they adopted me, and then they had Stephanie a year and a half later. So, oh, wow. yeah, okay. that's Yeah, and then I have a big extended family. So my dad's one of seven Love them to death. I don't know if you've seen my big fat Greek wedding, but they're kind of like the Italian version of that. I love it. I have like a ton of cousins. We all love to just get together and eat good food and yeah. you know have time and yeah, love my mom's family too. Like we all we all get along pretty well for the most part. So I feel really really fortunate. So that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And how's your sister doing? Oh, she's good. Yeah, she's um she actually is a teacher at our um high school that we both went to. Oh really. She, got her master's degree before me so i'm still working on mine so i'm like really proud of her so she's oh, she's doing awesome. well yeah and so uh what prompted the visit to go to korea at 14 you know it's just one of those always one of those things i had always been you know curious about always wanted to meet my birth family so i guess the main thing was the search for my birth family mm. you know what i mean um mm. just fighting my roots so that was pretty much what prompted it you know and I, I mean, to go to Korea at 14, obviously, you, you, I imagine you went with your parents. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's when I met them initially. So I went with my mom 
And we actually, it was really cool because it was a, a Birthland tour with a bunch of other Korean American adoptees. Okay. So we can all, you know, relate because, you know, we all look like foreigners to a certain extent, even though there are a bunch of Asian Americans or Korean Americans even in, in America, you know, look like foreigners and maybe treated like it sometimes. But then we go to Korea and we look like we belong, but we ironically aren't. We're foreigners. So it's like, yeah. well, great. Like, where do we fit in? You know what I mean? So uh, that was really cool to be able to connect with them. And there actually was another girl who met her birth family as well. Um, and she was told that her twin died at birth. And then like mm. three weeks before going on the tour, like, no, she's still alive. So what? that was pretty cool to have that like crazy shared experience. You yeah. know, it's only like only like 5% of all adoptees, you know, get that chance. I mean, granted, I know it might be low to you because some don't have the desire to, you know, which sure. is fine. I mean, we're all, we're all different. I've just, I've always been curious, I guess, because I, you know, I've, I've been fortunate with a good family that's always been supportive of that too. And I've just always had that inner curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I found out my, I guess, fighting and being athletic runs in the family. My, my uncle was like a national pro wrestler or like champion wrestler in Korea, which wow. is pretty cool. And he's like six foot two, like big. And my brother, my little brother, who's probably like, I don't know, 22, 23 now, he's like a bodybuilder and he's like six foot one and like, and like ripped up. I'm like, oh, great. I just got stuck with the short jeans, man. It's not cool. <laughs> You're still ripped up. So, I mean, you got that going for you. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> and your parents uh, and sister are generally supportive of all your curiosity about your adoption and all that stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, they they've always been supportive, you know. So and it meant a lot to me to to have my mom um, go with me like that. Um, it was cool to just you know like the first time when I walked in that hotel room. I was born in Busan, South Korea, really beautiful mm-hmm. uh, city right on the co- southeast coast of South Korea. And, um, you know, just sitting there in that hotel room with holding my birth mom's hand and my adopted mom's hand, you know, it was like the, the one woman who, who, you know, gave me life and the other one who basically helped shape my life and taught me how to live it. So it's just crazy, you know, yeah. I'm like thousands and thousands of miles away, you know, and I felt like they could still kind of, you know, connect with me just being their product, essentially. When did you find out that uh, you were going to meet your birth parents? probably like maybe six months before going on the tour. Mm -hmm. So like it was right before I basically graduated from eighth grade and was about to go to my private high school. Yeah. I would say like maybe December or January of that year. So. And did you initiate that, that desire to search? Like, did you approach your parents and ask for that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they'd always known I was curious and then, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess they, they're really sweet and they wanted to kind of, I guess, give me a a gift um, before I went on to the, the next move with, with high school and big changes. And um, they're like, yeah, we're, we're going to pay for it. And that was really awesome. And I, they were like, we think you should have this experience. So that was, that was really cool. Yeah. That's awesome that they're so supportive. Did they, did you end up doing any other adoption related stuff as a kid before you went to Korea? Yeah. I had done some like Korean culture camp stuff. And um, sometimes they had like Christmas parties with like the Korean adoption agency stuff. So yeah, that was, that was pretty cool, you know, to meet some other, some other Korean American adoptees. Sure. So that's always been a part of your life then. It's like something that you were comfortable with exploring. Yeah. Definitely. That's awesome. And so your mom went with you or were both your parents? Um, Just my mom. So I think my dad would have liked to have gone, but you know, he still had to like, because we were away for two weeks. He still had to support the family. I mean, my mom always sure, worked yeah. hard, hard too, but you know, she had to take two weeks off work. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was more so the practicality thing. And my dad doesn't like to fly or he's never been on a plane. So <laughs> yeah. And his daughter joined the Air Force. I know, yeah. <laughs> but I sit underground for my job, so that's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, for now. Yeah, for now, for now. <laughs> and then, uh, how long did you end up staying in Korea for? Um, you mean as a young adult after? Yeah, yeah, when, fourteen. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I was fourteen, it was just two weeks. But uh-huh. then, when I went back as an adult um, after I graduated from college, I was there for about six months. Okay, how was that? It was an experience, yeah. I was uh, living in Gumi, um, teaching uh, teaching uh, like vice presidents and high level executives at Samsung Electronics. Mm-hmm. It was pretty cool because I had a lot of freedom to design my own lesson plans. These people were brilliant. Like they're like, oh yeah, I like designed that phone that you're like, you know, work uh, playing around with and stuff. I was like, okay, oh my god, you're like ten times smarter than me. And but like I would like print out like CNN articles and we would just discuss it and they would get it. You know, they're at sure, that yeah. level. Like, their English was was really good, so I was. That was pretty cool. I love Korea because like they have so many like 
festivals. Um, yeah, and, I don't know, just a sense of community. So like I, I went to like a sand festival, we went sandboarding there. I met some, uh, you know, some French students who were there studying abroad. So we hung out for a weekend. Um, I don't know, just all sorts of cool stuff. I went to Jeju Island, um, which is really mm-hmm. gorgeous. Yeah. Um, Seoul was one of my favorites. So I don't know, even though it's a small country, there's a lot of really cool like temples and marketplaces and really good food and that sort of thing. So that was that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. there is definitely a ton to do in Korea. <laughs> yeah, 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 it was it was really cool. You'll so. never run out of stuff to do there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what year yeah. were you there? Uh, 2011. Yep. Okay, I had just left the year before, so uh, oh, really? probably didn't okay. change too much. But yeah, where, where did you say you were, Gumi? Gumi, yeah, I wasn't really a huge fan of it. I was kind of like, <laughs> still looked like a third world country because it, there were like pictures of like naked women everywhere and like I don't know, it was like super <laughs> sketchy, like these what? like like cheesy neon like plastic palm trees everywhere and like raw <laughs> smells raw, raw sewage. So I wasn't the biggest fan of that, but it was cool to be able to just hop on a train you know, that was like a 10 minute walk and just be able to go to Daegu, which was a cool city, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or take a, you know, $30 trip to Seoul, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I had some friends there. So yeah, I also, um, I know like my interests are kind of all over the place, but, um, yeah. Um, acting, I'd always loved acting. So I actually did, oh, yeah? did a little bit of that when I was in Daegu, like the Daegu theatrical oh, Daegu awesome. theater company. So I, I did some acting with like a lead role I had there, which oh, yeah? actually was like, a, it was like a murder mystery, which is pretty cool. So I had a good time with that. Um, made friends with a lot of like South African, like English teachers and Irish and sure, yeah. uh, so met some really interesting people. And um, I met this actually, I feel like I am as well as you are an example of how globalized the world has become. Oh, yeah. um, as well as this one kid I met, he was, uh, you know, ethnically Korean, fully 100% ethnically Korean, but he had grown up in Colombia his whole time, so his name was Andres. So we actually were speaking in Spanish because, like, I didn't speak a lick of Korean, and his English was like okay, but it wasn't that great. So yeah, yeah. You know, speak, I was speaking in broken Spanish to him, and you know, to try to communicate, which is pretty cool. So yeah, <laughs> like, you know, two Koreans, you know, speaking in Spanish, so. So That's here you cool. are, you're moving to Korea to teach English to Samsung execs and you're speaking broken Spanish to an Italian guy who grew or some guy who speaks right. Italian from Colombia. Yeah, some some Korean guy who grew up in Colombia, so it's pretty cool. <laughs> so, yeah. Yep. That is awesome. Yeah. That's so funny that you were, uh, so is that, uh, when did you start acting? When was that interest begin? Um, let's see. Yeah, I guess college. I, you know, I guess it really sparked with when I was um, acting in a bilingual production of the Vagina Monologues in Italy. And then, um, you know, a year later, I guess I basically submitted some of my photos and work to different agencies and got picked up by one. So, you know, I did some part time work there and make some money on the side and just have fun, you know. Um, So that's why I'm looking forward to going to living close to Austin to be able to get back into the acting and modeling industry, you know, for a bit, too. So that should that should be a good time. Yeah, it's supposed to be picking up out there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Got South by, so that's pretty cool, and a whole Hollywood and everybody comes to town. Yeah. (laughs) Um. Wait. So you went to UMD? Uh, UMBC. Oh, UMBC. Where'd you study there? Oh, uh, political science pre-law with a minor in art. Oh wow! Cool. Yeah, yeah, it was a good time. I I thought I was gonna do bio for a while and I really liked it and then I took organic chemistry and it like sucked oh, my soul yeah, out yeah. so I was like yeah well I think what I'm better at is like debating and researching <laughs> and arguing I don't know I guess more so debate you know I, I really like that so yeah that's why I pursued that so and then now I'm getting a master's in international relations so oh, you know along cool. similar lines so yeah good old yeah. IR yeah. What's your uh, thesis going to be on in IR? Is it something like really fancy like game theory? I don't know. I don't know. We'll <laughs> figure out. I, I still have like five classes to go. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. a history poli-sci undergrad. So, okay. And then also hilarious was uh, I also acted in Korea too. I acted in uh, – Really? Yeah, there was a group called the Seoul Players that I did a show with. And oh. That was the last thing I did before I left. Actually, it's funny because uh, I have a friend who – when we actually, so Amy Ginther, who I had talked to uh, in the third episode, and then she promoted something else, a workshop that she was doing in New York and LA. We did a show together. Yeah, so, that's funny. awesome. Small world. Yeah, that's crazy. Cool, cool. Yes, although I don't think I'm going to Austin anytime soon to start an acting career. <laughs> although <laughs> yeah. that would be cool. Uh, yeah. And then when did you uh, go to Italy? 
Um, this was my sophomore year of college, so I went to study abroad for a semester. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, since I, I told you my minor uh, was in art, um, mm-hmm. you know, I was pretty excited to. I, I got a partial scholarship, so that helped out. Um, but yeah, I was in Florence. I took some painting classes, some sculpture, art history, but it was just an incredible experience. Just walk outside of my apartment, and it just looked like the Renaissance, you know? So like, I feel really, you know, like just all the sculptures and the beauty and just the sense of community, just Uh walking everywhere and um, all the fresh food and just how friendly Italians are, you know, like I was like, ciao, ciao, come about tutto bene, you know, just always, always going out of their way to to talk to you. There's that community, you know, not saying that Americans don't have that, but you know, it's a shock when it's just, you know, because like with the suburbs and stuff, it's easier to just kind of isolate yourself and not really talk to your neighbors, which is what I was used to. And to be able to just kind of li- be in this dynamic environment where almost the way that the, the architecture was with the piazzas, these big, these big open spaces surrounded by beauty. It was just so much easier to, to meet a variety of people. You know, I made some cool Italian friends, um, dated an Italian military cop, um, you know, made friends <laughs> with a lot of, yeah, made, made friends with a lot of really cool um, people that I studied abroad with. So, um, yeah, I feel very fortunate in that regard. And just to be able to like, you know, linking it back in with Korea, but to, to be able to, I guess, live and immerse myself in the culture of my adoptive family, mm-hmm. as well as the culture of m- me with my ethnicity. So there's, you know, because people is, I don't know, I think it's important to distinguish between, you know, ethnicity, culture and nationality. So ethnically, of course, as me an example, you know, I'm Korean, you know, um, culturally, I feel more Italian American, but my nationality is just American. You right. know, all three of those kind of intertwine into into who I am. You know, so I think as, as the world becomes more globalized, people tend to assume that ethnicity and culture are one and the same. But no, they're very different things. You know, you can be ethnically something, but culturally something completely different. So that that made me realize that, um, I guess, being in, in Italy and always shocking people with being able to speak Italian somewhat brokenly, but still they're they shocked that I could speak any like, eh, how does this Chinese girl speak Italian? And I was like, <laughs> oh, it's a globalized world. I can pick up certain things pretty quickly. So did you get yeah. a lot of that while you were over there? Yeah, yeah, confusion yeah, about, I did. Like, yeah, like, you know, they would say, they, first they would say something to me in, like, Chinese, and then they'd say something to me in Japanese. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. like, probably not knowing it, you know, probably. <laughs> it's like, ni hao, then they'd say arigato. So I just, I don't know, I used to get mad about it, but after a while, I just had to, like, laugh it off. Like, uh, they just, they don't know. And then you curse them out in Italian, and they're, like, shocked. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so, Did you speak yeah. any Italian before you went over there? Were you studying No, I didn't. I actually, like, I had, you know, a pretty strong background in Spanish, and as you know, since Italian's a romance language, just, mm-hmm. you know, I was able to just listen. I, I don't know, like, I think languages is, is something, especially with romance languages, just come, you know, for, not easy to me, but like, I have a natural aptitude for it. So, you know, just having a lot of Italian friends and dating an Italian made it easier. And as you know, like, Italians are very um, charismatic, and they speak a lot with hands. <laughs> so like, yeah. well, I couldn't make understand like every little intricacy of what they said, I kind of got the gist of it. You know, sure. they were so it's a lot of body know, language to read. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. And how do you think did you did you try to learn uh, Korean while you were over there or before you went? Yeah, I did for a bit. Um, admittedly, did struggle with it because of the whole phonetic system. Mm-hmm. And that's my roommate, uh, Caitlin, was much more diligent about it, I will admit. So, yeah. So you found it to be a little bit more difficult than Italian. Yes, much more. Yeah, way more difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What was the community like when you were living in Korea? Was it just uh, hanging out with other English teachers that you had mentioned earlier, like the South Africans and all them? Yeah, yeah, it kind of was. But, like, pretty much it was just, like, me and my roommate, Caitlin, and we were, I guess, the only – English teachers that really hung out together at Samsung. And then there were like other different people who taught at different hogwans. I'm sure, you know, there's mm-hmm. like private schools mm-hmm. that we would randomly meet at bars or restaurants. Um, but what was cool is that our, our students at Samsung would, would often take us out to dinner for like dinner parties. So we'd get to hang out and drink with our own students, you know, which would not be a thing <laughs> if they were like, you know, obviously underage or anything well, yeah, like that. Well, yeah, after 12. Because they're, they're adults. <laughs> you know, that would never happen. I mean, completely. If yeah. they're like executive VPs of Samsung, you know, they can pay for that stuff. Too. exactly exactly <laughs> so yeah it was it was pretty cool to to hang out with them and i guess just learn more about um korean culture and, and their background and they were a trip so yeah yeah i'm with that were yeah. they curious about your background as well and uh yeah they were they were so um they're pretty 
understanding and, you know, respectful, found it to be very interesting, you know, so I thought that was pretty cool. Does any experience with them particularly stand out? I mean, other than the fact that they were, most of them were pretty, you know, friendly and, and eager to learn, it was a, just a very rewarding experience for me in general. Yeah. So, and what was your yeah. relationship with uh, your birth family like while you were living over there? Did you see them a whole lot? Um, I would go like maybe once or twice um, a month to go see them in Busan. And I had a good friend, actually, now I think of it, another friend, Hannah, who basically sounded like a native English speaker. She was fluent in Korean and English, and she was from Gumi. And she'd been working at Samsung for like a year or two. And uh, she would go down with me when she could to basically translate for me and stay with my family. My family really took a liking to her. So she actually went with me um, after seven years of not seeing them mm-hmm. to Korea, or not to Korea, to Busan to translate for me, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome that you had like a, yeah. a trusted agent that could help yeah. the VAs for you. Yeah, she she was. She was she's a really amazing person. So Yeah, because I know sometimes it's awkward. People get these translators that they don't know and it's between the culture and – like mm-hmm. if it's like a very stoic Korean guy, like yeah, or he's like, I don't exactly. know if I want to translate that. That seems very right? sensitive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you interact with any uh, adoptee groups while you were living over there, like Goal or Korood uh, or anything? Yeah, I talked to them a bit. I didn't really. I don't think I really got a chance to like meet up with them much while I was there. But w- whenever I go back to Korea at some point, I'd like to connect with them. Are you? Uh, do you know of any groups down there in Texas? No, but I mean, I'm I'm sure there are some. I'll just you know have to do my research. Yeah, so. there's got to be something in uh in Austin. I would think it's yeah. pretty pretty big area. How close There's to Austin are you going to be? Like half hour, yeah. Oh, man. That would be good, yeah. If there's one thing that I know about the Air Force, it is that they have uh, some of the best locations for bases when they're not <laughs> at nuclear sites underground. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Montana is pretty, I will say that, but I don't know. I'm a bit more of a city person, so I'm looking forward to being stationed at San Antonio next, um, you know, um, and then basically live in between San Antonio and Austin. So I mean, that's not a bad location. That sounds pretty good. I would be excited yeah. about that if I were you. Yeah, lots of opportunities for sure. Pretty excited about it. So Yeah, in so, terms yeah. of some of the better places that I've heard my buddies say that they've uh, served in, it would be like, yeah, uh, any of those Air Force bases and in the Navy, like San Diego. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, yep. come on. Come on. <laughs> It's yep. like the government's paying you to live in San Diego. I was like, that is awesome. <laughs> it's like perfect yeah. weather all year round. Pretty much. Oh, yeah. man. So you're going to be continuing to teach this course, this uh, martial arts course. Or, mm-hmm. or, or was it combatives? I don't know what the uh, title yeah, is. Yeah, it's, it's called MCMAP, a Marine Corps Martial Arts Program. So MCMAP. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the acronym for More it. More so. acronyms. Yeah, always, always. So you're still going to be in the Air Force. You're just going to be working yes. under the Marine Corps during exactly. teaching this course. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll often link up with um, this pretty cool corporal I met during the course. Mm-hmm. Um, he's actually going through the MEIT course now. He's going to be an instructor trainer. So he's going to come out as a black belt and be able to teach instructors. So Wow. Um, yeah, he's, he's pretty cool. So um, he's at, at Lackland now. It was crazy that, you know, we were both training at Quantico and I was, li- you know, I'm still stationed in Montana technically. And then, you know, he's stationed at Lackland, which is where I'm I'm going next. Um, so I'm pretty pumped to, you know, to link up with him once I get to Lackland and, you know, I guess, uh, you know, talk to his leadership about me helping out with training Marines. And then hopefully, um, I guess if I could start something up for the wing, you know, that people want to come to voluntarily for like combat conditioning, that would be pretty cool. Yeah, so that's I, awesome. I would see that, you know what I mean? Cause I don't know. I mean like, yeah, like air force, we don't see as much hand hand combat, but I think you still need to go know how to defend yourself in a deployed environment. So mm-hmm. especially, you know, if you're smaller like me, like joint manipulations, arm bar takedowns, um, knife fighting, that was like my favorite. That was really cool. So, you know, um, and just knowing, like, going back a little bit to what I learned in the course, like it was, like I said, it wasn't just like a fight club, a beat down. It was being, being a smart fighter, being an ethical warrior, you know? So like during one of the things I had to be evaluated on was, um, my ability to teach an anatomy and physiology course and how it applies to martial arts. So like mm-hmm. knowing, for instance, that there's this whole nexus of nerves underneath your armpit called the brachial plexus. If you stab someone underneath your armpit, it's not only going to hurt like hell, but it's also going to mobilize them or the jugular notch, which is right here. Um, I guess at the top of your clavicle, if you just do a straight job jab right to the clavicle, right to the jugular notch, and then come with a powerful overhand right or another follow-on strike, you know, that's going to shock your aggressor. 
and then you can kind of go on from there. So basically using distractors and, and fighting smart and using that um, continuum of force, not going from zero to 100, you know, kind of, uh, you know, sniffing out your opponent and knowing how to use force smart to basically just end the situation as opposed to escalate it unnecessarily. Right. Yeah. Yes, I am yeah. extremely intimidated right now. <laughs> <laughs> It was very scary. Yeah. I don't know what these technical terms are, but they sound frightening. Yeah, it was it was really cool. You know, like Marines like <laughs> the most one of the most basic things we learn is our our blood chokes and uh like the figure four variation choke, which is where you basically do a you know, choke from behind and you uh you know, basically um have your have your radial bone cut off the the carotid artery uh -huh. and if you do it right actually it doesn't take a whole lot of force it's just finding the right spot right. it can actually render your aggressor unconscious within eight to 13 seconds so a lot of it has to do with technique you know what i mean so that was pretty cool and just practicing that muscle memory i guess back to the whole how i guess impressed i was with my instructor trainer that uh staff sergeant knife fighting was his thing and he told us the reason why was because when he was stationed in hawaii this like 350 pound hawaiian man basically came up behind him when he was just sitting on a bench minding his own business after a night out with his buddies uh night before deployment to iraq and this guy had a pair of brass knuckles on his fists and just slammed his skull in over and over these brass knuckles violently so staff sergeant just thank god he had a knife on him slashed his carotid artery and kept just stabbing at him until he went away he had to, when he went to the hospital, he had to get over 100 stitches behind his ear Jeez. right here. I was surprised, you know, that he even, you know, survived. So yeah. thank God he knew how to defend himself and fight back. And then he was on a plane to Iraq like seven hours later. So they still yeah, shipped him out after that? Yeah, he was still shipped out. Yeah. So he, <laughs> Jeez, he's, that he is was insane. up his nails. Yeah. So it was just, I don't know. I just loved the intensity that he had as well as the intensity of the other, you know, the other Marines, you know? So. Mm -hmm. You know, I realized that, you know, like you come out of any sort of training or certification, you come out kind of gung-ho like, yeah, this is awesome and I'm going to change things. And, you know, I realized that some you know, with some of the attitudes like, oh, yeah, McMap is stupid and Tan Belt Warriors is kind of a joke. But I don't know, like I I've talked to other Marines and it seems like it it's the attitude of the instructor that drives it. So if you mm. if you're intense but positive but not like too, too overly gung-ho, then they'll be more receptive to you. So, so yeah, I'll probably just kind of feel out the culture of the Marine unit um, that I'm going to help train mm -hmm. before I, you know, kind of maybe go all gung-ho. So we'll do, see. Do people say that? Do, say, do people say that MCMAP is – I mean, I know I made a joke earlier about the acronym, yeah. but I mean, like, it sounds like, like I would not want to get choked out with a radial whatever on my carotid yeah. <laughs> artery and then passed out. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think like after talking to a bunch of Marines that I trained with, it seemed like it was more so if people just got their tan belts because I don't know if you're familiar with the belt system with the Marine Corps martial arts, uh, no, but no. Um, it's yeah, it's a tan belt, then gray belt, then green belt, then brown, then black. And you have to basically learn a bunch of techniques and be able to execute each technique uh -huh. during a belt. Test. So tan belt is like the minimum you have to have. Technically, you don't sure. have to go further than tan belt. But if you just aren't really, I guess, too keen on martial arts, that's all you have to have. As like a Marine or... or... As a Marine, yeah. So they all have to go through this. Yeah, at least just tan belt, yeah. Okay. And what is like the minimum that you learn as like a tan belt? For example, like just basic stuff like jabs, um, doing a, a lead hand punch, a hook, what else? Yeah, figure four variation choke is one of them. We actually learned some pretty cool, I guess, like counters to to strikes and counters to, to chokes. Mm -hmm. So like there's counter to the rear headlock, counter to the rear bear hug. Um, so that's pretty cool because a lot of it has to do with kind of just op opening that airway up and then, you know, basically swimming your arm through and then basically using that momentum to kind of swing your opponent back and then doing a hammer fist, that sort of thing, um, which is pretty cool. So, so is there like a counter... Uh, rear naked choke. Uh, have to look at the techniques. There's a bunch we learn because, like, right right now I'm a green belt martial arts instructor, uh, so so that's like yeah, midway yeah. through. Yeah, basically, but I, I plan on going for my black belt before. I would like to eventually go through the MEIT course, so become an instructor trainer. But you know, I have to basically work that out with my reserve unit, mm -hmm. and that's since since I'm going to be an intel officer. So oh, okay. Yeah, so, so it's way different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I only ask about the rear naked because I, I just started taking jujitsu like a couple of months ago, and I totally got choked out the other night. <laughs> oh, said, yeah. There's got to be yeah. a way to counter this. I need to find out because I was like, this sucks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it does. It Which, does. Yes. It's, ne- it's never fun getting choked out, but it's important to learn. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, like you have to is. learn how to take that hit. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So you're going to be an Intel officer? Is, are you, I'm sure you get this all the time, but are you, how long are you planning to stay in? Are you planning to do the, um, full, the full 20? 20. Yeah, full 20 in the reserves. I just, um, I love being in the Air Force. I love being in the military. I just, I want more control over where I am. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So plan on doing three years in Texas and then um, hopefully the rest of my time in, in Cali or who knows, maybe some IMA slots and be able to go to like, you know, Italy or somewhere cool for like a month and a half and serve out my time. That'd be really cool. So more awesome places that the air. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. Well, that wouldn't be yeah. bad. So you want to yeah. go back to Italy? That's like the, the Oh movie. man. Yeah. That was fantastic. Yeah. I loved it. <laughs> so. I mean, if the military is going to pay for it, then why not? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So. And then when you go to all these different places, are you going to be planning on uh, continuing after you get your instructor trainer certification to mm-hmm. uh, continue trying to teach this elsewhere? Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I want to teach as many people as I can. And um, what I'd like to do, I guess, is kind of link it up with where other you know Marines are to kind of have that support base. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because like Air Force doesn't have a program like this and Marine units have like all the resources, whether it's it's the, I don't know, all the equipment, like the mocha juice, which are like the wooden bayonets or the, you know, the plastic knives or the, the batons or that sort of thing to be able to train with and to just be able to have that support. So, yeah, yeah. I feel like I, I kind of struck a gold mine not even knowing that there was a Marine unit at Lackland, which I thought was pretty cool. Sure. So, so yeah. And then uh, do you think that maybe outside of the military you'd like to open up uh I don't know, an instructor place of your own. That way you can teach. Uh... Yeah, eventually that would be pretty cool. So, yeah, I would love to. But just have to kind of figure out how it lines up with all of my other goals, you know. <laughs> all of your many other plans yeah. and your uh, yeah. IR masters. <laughs> yeah, and maybe eventual State Department. We'll see. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, that would be cool. We'll see. Yeah. Are yeah. going to teach but... the State Department guys how to defend themselves as well? Yeah. I don't know. Even if I got the opportunity to like help out with like teaching spec ops guys or something, like that'd be pretty cool. So that would be pretty rad. Yeah, yeah, it would be. So. I mean, yeah, I'm sure they want to know how to choke a guy out in eight seconds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, do you feel like there is something about the fighting spirit uh, and adoptees at all? Do you feel like there is some sort of resilience yeah. or something that that kind yes. of brings to you? Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, like, I don't think it has to be in the literal sense. You know, I think that we're all, maybe it sounds cheesy to an extent, but like fighters, you know, we all were basically put in these, <laughs> basically, uh, out of our comfort zone from the time we were infants. You know what I mean? Looking different from our own families, always getting asked random questions, maybe feeling like we are out of place and mm-hmm. having to find constantly kind of I guess, come to terms with both sides of our identity, ethnically looking like something, but culturally being something else and constantly having to explain that, constantly have to, I don't know, fight for ourselves and stand up for ourselves, especially as adolescents, I, you know, because I, I think just, I don't know, kids when they're, they're younger especially can be kind of cruel. Yeah. So um, just just coming to terms with, with, with polar opposite aspects of your identity and um, I mean, I'm not going to lie, like, I, you know, as a kid, I feel like I rejected and even in high school, I rejected a lot of my Korean identity, mm. you know, because I felt like there were a lot of those negative stereotypes like, mm-hmm. oh, nerdy studies too much. And yeah, I kind of fit that stereotype in terms of like studying a lot because I, I cared a lot about my grades, but I was also, you know, on varsity cross country, you know, doing really well, you know, towards the top of the team. So, you know, I felt like I broke certain stereotypes, but also maybe fit certain stereotypes. But in the end, I feel like it is stupid stereotypes shouldn't matter as much. It's just about, you know, finding yourself in your niche and what you're passionate about. So, yeah. What would you tell to uh, adolescents these days, uh, especially in the age of the World Wide web and social media and Snapchat and Twitter and anonymity, maybe who are getting bullied and stuff who uh, don't necessarily have those uh, resilient skills that you have? I think just don't, it sounds so much easier said than done, but just don't, take a lot of that like cyber bullying to heart or you know stupid Facebook comments or whatever you know what I mean like if 
if that person is, you know, someone that you come into direct contact with all the time or is one of your classes, you know, don't be afraid to just calmly confront them and be like, hey, like, you know, like what you did wasn't cool. And, you know, here's why. And just be able to kind of, I guess, you know, handle the the situation maturely from the start. You know what I mean? It, it might be awkward and uncomfortable to confront them, but in the end, it's going to make you a much stronger and a much better person and I don't know, a bigger person, in my opinion, than that other person who, um, I guess, was trying to say, you know, condescending things about you. Have you had to face any personal adversity um, going to that Marine Corps course as a, as a woman of a smaller stature? No, because I did really well with like the Marine Corps PT test from the start. Like yeah. I maxed it out and got 100. So I think from then, you know, at first there's probably like the, the bias, like, oh, Asian, Air Force and five foot nothing. You know, <laughs> maybe there was some of that bias, but none of them were ever like, I guess, disrespectful to me in any way. You know what I mean? They're all squared away. You know, uh, I think because I always had a serious attitude about it and, you know, worked hard and, you know, and I'm in pretty good shape. They didn't like treat me like a joke or treat me poorly. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they're always really supportive and, you know, especially the instructor trainers, Mm -hmm. you know, so, so that was really cool. That's awesome. So, So yeah, it was, it was a really good experience. Yeah, it sounds like a good experience. It sounds like you're continuing to have good experiences with the, uh, the military. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And you're looking forward to going down to Texas, continuing yeah. your uh, possibly your acting career and your modeling <laughs> career. Yeah, part part time, you know. So my other like ten million interests, but yeah, fighting and acting and you know everything else. But, but yeah, so. Well, that sounds pretty awesome. I mean, I, I feel like I don't know this year. It seems like to me, 2016. This is good. It seems like it's off topic, but I don't think it is. It's, <laughs> you know, between um. Ming-Na Wen and Constance Wu and the starring John Cho hashtag and everything that yeah. this is the year that Asians are, are finally kind of breaking out and saying, look, uh, we, we deserve more representation in Hollywood. Yes. Do you have any uh, particular opinions about that? Definitely. I mean, I had always been frustrated since I was a kid of the fact that you flip through any Cosmo magazine or any glamour magazine, it was always white models or maybe some African-American models, but most of the time the ethnic models looked more white. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Kind of confirming that white was that standard of beauty and Asians were just kind of pushed to the side or that we were just foreigners constantly typecasted as Kung Fu masters or dragon ladies or something stupid like that. You know, I feel like Lucy Liu was definitely kind of helped to break that, you know, in certain um, roles that she was in, whether it was Charlie's Angels or um, Sherlock Holmes, which is pretty cool, that that show. I I guess what, I don't know, I know it's kind of maybe a a bit of a controversial subject, but it annoyed me that, um, is it Emma Stone was casted in Aloha as a like half Chinese person when she had blonde hair, blue eyes in Mm -hmm. that film. They couldn't even get someone who was actually half Asian or yeah. fully descent like that. I don't know. Maybe I take it to heart too much because I'm I'm Asian American, but that that offended me. I was like, that's that's complete BS. You know what I mean? Sure. So I mean, we should be represented. If you're if you're going to cast someone, if the role is specifically Asian, find someone who's Asian. You yeah. know what I mean? Because a lot of times it, I notice that Asians are casted because the role calls for the race to be, as opposed to it being an open role where race doesn't matter. Like, I understand if it's a historic thing, like, I don't know, Civil War or something like that, like, you know, you're not going to really have the need for Asian actors. But, mm-hmm. you know, if it's something where it's a more modern film where race shouldn't matter, I feel like we should be more, you know, considered based on our acting skills and um, that sort of thing than, than race. So, well, sure. I mean, you know, yeah. look at the the blow up over Hamilton on Broadway. I mean, that's a mostly minority-led cast, and obviously the founding fathers were not necessarily minorities. Yeah, but it's pretty incredible what they did with it because really, it's what it's turned it into is more of an immigrant story than anything else, which I think mm-hmm. is is fascinating. Yeah. So it's yeah. just if ta- I think uh, in general, it's taking these different perspectives to integrate and diversify the way Asians and other minorities are represented in Hollywood, which is seems this year to be finally making its its stance known. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, I know like Constance Wu, she, 
she was in like fresh off the boat and mm-hmm. still kind of a stereotype. But I mean, I, I guess it is cool that they did have a, you know, a TV show centered around, you know, an entirely Asian family. Um, yeah. And for so, it to be so successful was, so far. I mean, the last time that happened yeah. was 20 years ago with all American girl. We yeah. haven't seen anybody on TV since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I know there were people upset about like it doesn't follow, especially Eddie Huang who uh, wrote the book obviously and had a, another TV show called Fresh Off the Boat on Vice, but he was upset about the way the first season turned out and everything. I think he's calmed down since then, but I think it's it's only because of the success of the show that it he's calmed down. I'm like, look, man, like I, I read the book and I don't really agree with Eddie Huang on all of his views, but I'm like. Hey, at least we have like some representation on television right now. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's a positive light. It is so true. I'm pretty happy true. about that at least. Yeah. That is true. That Although is we true. still have a ways to go, but you know, it, yeah. it might be getting better. I'm seeing a little bit of progress. Yeah, that is true. At least we've made some progress from, what was it? Breakfast at Tiffany's? Uh, that a was white that actor Long Duck Dong or yeah that was pretty <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that was kind of painful to watch but yeah I mean like the the history of whitewashing and yellow face is pretty pretty disturbing over and, yeah. and the negative stereotypes towards Asians in general mm-hmm. uh, also kind of yeah. kind of sad but I feel like as a as a national conversation maybe we're making some progress in moving past it I hope yeah yeah I, I think so I think part of it is because I guess I'm not trying to isolate other groups, but I think that it's hard to kind of understand if you aren't in our particular ethnic group. Cause some people are like, Oh, there's no racism against Asians. It's like, well, there is, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, maybe it's a bit more subtle than some of the others. So sure. you know what I mean? So, and even if yeah. it is somebody telling you that, Oh, you're so smart and nerdy and blah, blah, blah. Like you're still, right. you're still being put in a box. Exactly. You know, it's exactly. like, don't, don't categorize me like that. Yeah. 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 So, I know. I could tell him I I almost failed physics and calculus. I'm terrible at math. <laughs> yeah, math was really. really I agree with you. I pre- I prefer a debate rather than <laughs> than a math yeah, problem or organic exactly. chemistry, which sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All yep. right. Well, is there uh, where can people find you online or on on Twitter or social media or whatever? I mean, just find me on my Facebook page, so Liz Guidara, or you can go to my LinkedIn page, so same name. Yep. All so. right, and people can connect to you there and uh, fan the page and say, "Hey, yeah, you're awesome! You're totally. a great role model." <laughs> nah, just just work hard. You know, um, you know, I'm grateful for all the opportunities I've been I've been given, and you know, I you know I appreciate you reaching out to me and us being in touch. You know, so thank you for the opportunity to be on your on your show. No, so. thank you. I I feel like I I just. Because Spencer had mentioned you, I was like, "Oh, maybe I can just say, hey, that's awesome! What a badass! <laughs> Please don't yeah. punch me in the face if you ever meet me, because I feel like <laughs> uh, I don't know. There, there would probably be like that thing. I don't know if it was in Bloodsport or whatever. My nose would just shoot into my brain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, she probably knows that. So, but yeah, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah. I was kind of calling out into the void and just saying you're awesome. And I, I think you're you're super inspirational, just like as a as a fighter, as a as a model, as a beautiful person, uh, oh, as <laughs> hopefully as a as a future great actress and and State Department person, <laughs> <laughs> intelligence officer, uh, uh, James Bond filling. Uh, <laughs> no. Yeah, that's awesome. Right, well, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you. Take care. All right. You too. Bye. All right. Bye. And that was the end. Uh, that was the end of the episode. That's the end of the episode. That's the uh, interview. My conversation with Liz. Hope you enjoyed that. Hope you uh, have a great Fourth of July weekend, and that you had a great time celebrating our our independence. If you're in America, and if you're not in America, just have a have a good weekend in general. <laughs> this episode is going out a little bit late because we're celebrating up here in the Berkshires and in Boston. So hello, Boston Cads. I uh, sorry I'm missing you this weekend. Uh, but I'll let you know next time I'm up here and we can all have fun and celebrate. Uh, what else? What else? Oh, music this week provided by The Bell at Needle Drop Records as well as a collective effort. You can find them on SoundCloud. Uh, you can find me if you would like to find me online at Facebook at facebook.com slash TheRamblerADHD. You can like my page. I post things there. 
a lot of things that you could, if those kinds of things interest you, spread the word. You can share things from there as well, which would be appreciated. I'm also on Twitter at twitter.com slash TheRamblerADHD or uh, at TheRamblerADHD, I guess, if you have the Twitter app on your phone or, or whatever. Uh, you can tweet at me. You can always email me at TheRamblerADHD at gmail.com if you'd like to be a guest on the show or if you know somebody who'd like to be a guest on the show or if you'd just like to drop a line and say, hey, I really like what you're doing. Keep going. It's awesome. I appreciate that because it helps me be motivated to keep providing episodes for you to share their stories, to share interesting stories like today's with Liz Guadara. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy this and I hope you continue to enjoy it. And if you really like it, and I would really appreciate it as well, you should rate me on iTunes and leave a nice review. You should leave a very nice review that says like, this guy is awesome. And then you can help me get up on the, on the podcast charts and you can help spread the word. If you like the show, spread the word. Invite your family and friends to listen to the show as well. We got some great episodes coming up to include next week's guest, Katie Holes. I know a lot of people have been asking me for uh, Chinese adoptees to be interviewed. So I uh, uh, got in contact. Uh, they contacted me at China's Children International, and uh, I will have one of their board members, Katie Holes, on next week. And hopefully uh, we can convince some more people from China's Children International and other organizations to come on the show as well. Again, if you'd like to suggest people or whatever, just get in, get in contact with me. Get, get in contact with me? Get in contact with me. With me. You know what I'm trying to say. Uh, I think that's all I got this week. So you guys enjoy the rest of your weekend. Enjoy the rest of your week. Happy 4th of July. Take a much-needed break. Get some sun. Put on uh, some suntan lotion, okay? Don't get burnt. Don't get burnt up. And peel everywhere. That's gross. All right. Uh, enjoy your weekend and stay safe, everybody. Peace out. I doubt that I could ever find a 